And I'm Colin. And this is Frederick Uncut. Where we talk about what you're curious about in Frederick County with a new episode each Tuesday. This week, Senator Elizabeth Warren announced the formation of Exploratory Committee on December 31st. Speculation of a presidential run continues to buzz around former U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke and Senator Kamala Harris told Stephen Colbert she might run. Elections expert and former Maryland Secretary of State John Willis breaks down lessons learned from 2016, voter turnout in 2018, and his take on who's got a chance. So, John, you've got experience as a professor at the University of Baltimore and experience in politics um, in many capacities, it sounds like. Maybe just to start us off, you know, we're already seeing um, people declare for the presidential election in 2020. Can you tell us what has been notable to you so far? And we'll just kick it off there and then we can hear a little bit more about your experience. Well, what's notable is that we have an extraordinary circumstance. We have an extraordinary person occupying the White House who is generating all kinds of controversy and uh, counterpoint, and that's going to make for an extraordinarily interesting two years in the in the political world. And typically what happens is the 2020 election or the next presidential election informally among the politicos starts the day after the 2018 election closed. And we're going to look. Um, I had several young students of mine who were interested in getting involved in presidential elections. And I said to them, the first thing I want to check next week, the campaign finance reports will be released. And you're going to want to see who has money and who doesn't mm-hmm. have money. And what I've been saying is that you need at least $10 million as an entry fee Mm -hmm. um, in order to participate in some of the early states. That's an expensive program. That leaves probably all of us in this room out of the the starting equation for 2020, if you want to amass that for future cycles. But uh, Why in the age requirement, at least? Age also. We have to be 35. So I'm eligible twice over, but I don't have the 10 million to, to put up uh, to enter. So who do you think is going to be president? I'm just oh, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Extraordinarily difficult question. I was in the Maryland General Assembly for the opening yesterday, which is one of the great political theaters of Maryland politics, and uh, got that question constantly. Um, and in the class that, that uh, I teach, I teach a campaigns and elections class and the Maryland government class, and the uh, answer is that whoever we decide today in this session is wrong because uh, polls are notoriously wrong. The person ahead one year away in every election except two since World War II has not been the winner. So... Uh, if you're going to be the, looking for the successful candidate, don't look at the one that's in the lead. Look at the one that's third or fourth or even fifth. I mean, or even Jimmy Carter was at 3% one year away from the election. So it's likely to be someone um, that is not on the tips of the tongue of the of the pundits, the national pundits, but someone who has the energy, the drive, the message, and can assemble the resources uh, to to win, go through the winnowing process. That's sort of what happened with President Trump, wasn't it? Oh yes. Well, he he was always because of his uh, TV personality and his uh, um, his own character. Uh, in the conversation, but he wasn't taken seriously among 
the political types until he uh, exhibited those skills in the political arena, uh, mm-hmm. basically by picking off candidates one by one uh, and at- attacking them at their weak points, whether it was their stature or their position on on issues, um, uh, figuring out how to uh, appeal to segments of the electorate. And the same thing's going to happen on the Democratic side this time. It's going to be uh, likely to be uh, someone who um, people may guess and guess right, but it's likely to be someone that there's not a consensus around right now. Beto? Isn't that his name? Beto from Beto, Beto O'Rourke, yeah. Congressman O'Rourke, mm-hmm. uh, ran a great campaign in uh, 2018 and came close, but Texas, did, for example, didn't have the turnout that we had in Maryland. Had they had the voter turnout in Texas uh, percentage-wise that mm-hmm. we had in Maryland, uh, he might have been able to get that other 150,000 so votes, uh, but he, he wasn't able to generate that. He does have money. He has the qualifying fee from what I know several and I'll go back to my students often here this afternoon because they're they're a good touchstone on what people are looking for Uh, some people were attracted to his candidacies good-looking guy good on the stump plays music you know um, and can and had a had a good message uh, of optimism for the future Um, uh, but we'll see Uh, he's going to start off in the among the few candidates that are in the double digits, whether he has the staying power when that goes to other states um, is, is going to be the challenge. So voter turnout, that's one of your kind of areas of expertise. And can you run us through, you know, what your background has been and your experience has been quickly and what what some of those oh, areas of expertise me, would be? Yeah, uh, it quickly is hard for me. I, <laughs> I wrote a book called Presidential Elections in Maryland, which tracks all the voter turnout from 1789 to the to the present. And uh, she calls it a cure for insomnia because I have all the registration and turnout data uh, back that far. Uh, But what's critical to each of the candidates in the primary is uh, what does the electorate look like in that state in which they're going to competing and how does that match up with their strengths? Okay. And and then they want to increase the volume. They want to increase the turnout in those states. And then in the general election, the same thing's true, but that's a long way away. Mm -hmm. It's 22 months away. Mm -hmm. Uh, But turnout will be a a big factor. I expect that we're going to see a similar surge in 2020 that we saw in uh, 2018. Um, Now, 2016 was a pretty good turnout. It was a good turnout here in Maryland. It was a good turnout in other states. But I expect that factor to be increased a little bit uh, in 2020 uh, because um, I don't expect the current occupant of the White House to remain quiet. And every time he speaks, he's generating opposition or he's generating whether it's his own base enthusiasm on that side or whether it's opposition he's going to help generate turnout. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned local politics. Uh, we talked about a possible blue wave that currently uh, happened in the midterm uh, elections last year. I'm wondering your opinion on that. Uh, I seem to differ from those here, some of those here, at least some reporters, that it was a true blue wave uh, for the midterm elections. I don't think it was as much of a blue wave. What did you think? 
Well, no. The the evidence of the wave was here in Frederick County. Mm-hmm. No question about it. You had 23,000 more voters. Mm-hmm. You had the most number of voters ever, 107,000 voters in Frederick County, the most ever in the history of Frederick County by 27,000 voters. And um, the other thing is what you look at to discern wave is what was the you had the highest turnout among Democratic registered voters in Frederick County in 2018 in the history of Frederick County, mm-hmm. ever, at 67% of Democrats. 60, now, Republicans were up, too, at 66%, but their growth from four years ago was only 4%, from 62% to 66%, but the Democratic turnout was 13 or 14%. So it was big. Now, we're, we may not be talking... We're certainly not talking 20,000, 50,000 or whatever, but one of the uh, central things to understand about elections is that the electorate, the people who actually show up are not the same from year to year. The composition of the electorate is constantly changing, and it changed dramatically in 2018, particularly when compared to 2014 and 2010. The other part of the wave, whether it was blue or red, was certainly women. The women were, as a, by two or three percentage points, a larger share of the electorate than they were in 2014. Uh, 61% of the total Democratic voters were women. Uh, It was the largest single cohort of any male-female cohort uh, in the entire Maryland electorate. So it did show up. It showed up here. It showed up in um, uh, Anne Arundel County. It showed up in parts of Baltimore County, parts of uh, um, Howard County, where you had a a Democratic woman defeat uh, um, an incumbent Democratic woman in the state Senate in in, Anne in Howard County, you had a, a Democratic woman who defeated an incumbent Republican in the northern part, or the District 42. So you saw it in in places, and certainly the youngest female ever elected to the Maryland General Assembly came from District 30 in, in middle part of Anne Arundel County. So you could see it here in Maryland. Um, and and I'm looking at you, but we we should get a precinct map out, and I'll show you where it came <laughs> from. And we can actually, what we can actually do with voter files now, which good campaigns do, and in which academics like myself will do, we can we'll be able to pinpoint by precincts and even by name. Here are people who didn't vote in 16 or didn't vote in 14, and they they turned out this time. Do you think that'll happen in 2020? Uh, I think there w- 20 to, 2016 was a pretty good turnout in Maryland. I think there were, remember, the voter registration files change every minute. Mm-hmm. New people turn 18, people die, people move. It's constantly churning. Mm-hmm. And and I've run uh, data over comparing elections to elections, and it uh, you have some precincts like Ballinger Creek right here near you, all right? You have people here um, who may have moved here within the last five years. You may not participate in local elections the first couple cycles, but ultimately you may get brought into the process. That showed up in, in Frederick County in 2018. I expect it'll show up 
in uh, uh, 2020. And the reason it's going to show up has to do with the Trump effect, because you have a substantial number of federal employees, contractors who are impacted by what goes on in the federal government. It's not just the employees, it's the contractors and the small businesses who are not providing goods and services to the federal government. Those people are going to have an attitude. I don't think they're going to miss the 2020 election. And I think if you're going to be, Frederick, you're going to be in the center of that. It may not be the same in Garrett County. It may not be the same in, in other jurisdictions. But Frederick County is now in the middle of of what goes on in Maryland and what goes on in, in the, certainly the capital region. So you mentioned the Trump effect. I want to learn more about what makes a voter come and vote. So what what kind of are the signs maybe we could look for in 2020 that, that people are going to show up for this? What, what factors influence that? Well, we're going to look at registration, okay? And, and not just registration. We're going to look at it. I track monthly. I, tr- I look at the registration data monthly. Uh, and we know how many new people add, add in, how many people go off, uh, for what reason. There's a a lot of information available that that uh, um, political, a good political campaign will keep track of, and that I've been keeping track of for f- nearly 40 years now. Uh, so I'll be looking at that to see if there's any spike. Uh, the year of a presidential election tends to be the year in which the most number of people get involved, and we'll be able to compare that to 16 and 12 or however far back you got. I, I go. I go back to 1880. So we can compare that to see whether or not it's a normal increase or is it a spike in it. The second thing, when it gets closer to the election, uh, and it's funny, we're talking about this today, but the, the Maryland primary is going to be in April 2020, not very far away, and the filing deadline uh, you know, the ballots are going to be formed in January next year, so we're we're less than a year away before the ballot will be sh- in, in shape. Uh, we're going to see how many individuals file to run for delegate to the convention on both sides. In other words, that's an indication of voter enthusiasm. Are the, are the individual citizens in each of the congressional districts motivated to run? And if that number explodes that's an indication of voter interest. Mm. Uh, And then as we get closer to the election, uh, things like absentee ballots. You know, we knew, I mean, I I always told the media and everybody that, you know, I knew 18 was going to be bigger than 14, but it it actually went beyond um, what was anticipated. And the the absentee ballots uh, showed that, you know, we had the second most number of absentee ballots in a gubernatorial election in the history of Maryland. So we knew the turnout was going to be uh, significant. A big uh, topic right now that's being discussed is redistricting um, or otherwise known as gerrymandering in this. But they're not the same. Those terms are not the same. Redistricting happens every 10 years. Yes. And it's going to happen at the congressional level. It'll happen at the legislative level, and it'll happen at the council level. And as I was thinking, coming up here from Baltimore, um, you're, everybody is focused on the congressional district right now. We'll see what the standards the Supreme Court comes up with uh, later this, uh, hopefully by the end of uh, June, we'll know. Um, but that 
in and of itself isn't the motivator for showing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, we actually had an election on the current congressional district lines, which was approved, you know, by more than 60% in the election of 2012. So I, I, don't, I don't know that that's going to be a driver uh, of turnout. Yeah, but depending on what happens with the Supreme Court, what happens with the court ruling that's upcoming this year, proposed proposedly is that a, is that a word i don't know that purportedly. that's a word. purportedly that's what i was thinking that's what i was <laughs> thinking close. thank you very close uh do you think that that could have an impact on the 2020 election not really no that's a good thing to hear because we keep hearing yeah. that this is the biggest deal in the world i'm glad to hear that somebody's like no mm -hmm. it's not it's okay we've had controversies like this for hundreds of years it's, it's true. not an it's not a unique controversy um and so I don't, I, don't, I don't expect that to be a huge driver of turnout. It's important mm -hmm. to the people involved, mm -hmm. I mean, to the candidates. It's important to the political parties. It's important. But in terms of the average person, you know, who's going about their daily lives and trying to support their families or get a job or go to school or whatever, that's not at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. So what were the biggest drivers of turnout for 2018 and will those still be true in, in the well the trump effect will be there okay yeah and in fact one of the things i said to some of your colleagues around the state in terms of media the trump effect was bigger than the hogan effect without mm. a doubt you know uh and that's because his positions his rhetoric is so at odds with what marylanders considered to be normal range of tolerance for behavior uh, and the fact that we have an ex a much higher percentage of people who are engaged either directly or indirectly with what happens in the federal government, uh, that's still going to be there, all right? Um, the other factors are, you know, what ultimately becomes the matchup? In other words, uh, I, th I think uh, it, uh, the Trump effect will increased turnout, but it depends to see who the Democratic nominee is going to be as to whether they add message, charisma, character, other personal factors that can, that can drive it. And then what issues come up? Uh, I told some folks yesterday in Annapolis, I said, we could be very well facing an, another, uh, you know, Depending on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health, we could be facing another hot, even hotter than the Kavanaugh hearings uh, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, vacancy and fight, which could greatly mobilize people on, on both sides of, of what the Supreme Court composition, Supreme Court should look like. Um, I remember prior presidential elections where um, they gave out a button at the convention, which was nine, all right, uh, <laughs> representing the Supreme Court, number of people on the Supreme Court. I could very easily see that being a big issue again in 2020. You just described uh, what, you, what, what it would take from a Democratic candidate to come along and sort of have a big impact. Of the candidates, potential candidates right now, are there any that you see that have some of those traits that you described? Well, you mentioned Beto early, and he mm -hmm. showed part of the elements of that in, in the, the, the quickie kind of lesson of a course I teach in campaign selections is it's money, media, message. And so you need a certain amount of money 
in order to do the nuts and bolts of a campaign and to do your research and to and to compile your um, staff and implement your plan. Uh, the media depends on how good are you in this setting, whether it's podcast, it's live uh, broadcast, it's uh, uh, so it's earned media as well as paid media. What do your commercials look like? What is it that you've tipped on? And then the message, and that is, have you got a message that inspires people to support you? And and I actually believe uh, that the the Democrat who is going to be most successful is going to be someone who can present a positive image, some kind of image that the country can look different than what it looks like now uh, while pointing out the problems with the current administration, but not necessarily run a totally negative campaign, but to produce some kind of positive message. And we haven't really seen all of that yet. We haven't seen what the candidates are really going to put out in front of the public. Um, as, as reporters and journalists, you may want to start paying attention to what does their opening speech look like in Iowa or New Hampshire, and what are they saying? What kind of themes are they testing? Um, and and um, they're going to be struggling just like all of us to figure out how to communicate with the public. I mean, along that vein, is it too soon to predict what the topic will be like the decide i mean immigration or is it is it too early to kind of talk about what those well major i think issues? the pre- i think the, i think uh, uh i i think uh the the current the current administration wants to keep immigration alive as an issue <laughs> um I think they and and I think it will remain there i mean if you look back at the history of immigration i mean we were generating over a million people a year coming into this country for for gener- for 20 30 years in a row so immigration is a substantial issue it's here in frederick it's here in most jurisdictions in maryland it's certainly here in the south southern border of the country um and so I think that issue is likely to be there. Whether that's number one or not, I don't know. The economy tends to be, in presidential elections, always the issue that rises to the top. And I think that that, in large, to a large extent, explained the, tr- the Trump victory in 2016 was the suffering that middle-class Americans and factory workers were in Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania enduring that it was the economic factors and they were frustrated with the lack of federal response from Democrats and Republicans and he offered a new opportunity in a new wave. I'm not sure the economy is going to be as good hmm. in 2020 as it as it is right now. We'll see. We're going to keep an eye on employment rates. We'll keep an eye on inflation. We'll keep an eye on on um, uh, business activity, and I think that's uh, an economic message is going to be important to the nominees and and in the general election. In terms of, I mean, so looking at Hillary Clinton and what maybe she did or didn't do when when mm-hmm. candidates are trying to figure out their messaging and how to get people to come mm-hmm. out for them, what are they learning from twenty sixteen? Well. And, I, and it, I've been privileged to meet the Hillary on numerous occasions, both in my in my official 
capacity when I was Secretary of State and and then uh, politically over the years. Um, part of the biggest failings of that campaign was kind of ignoring her own weaknesses. Uh, in other words, the, your opponent and 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 your opponent exploiting your weakness, weaknesses mm. and the re, and and the negative about Hillary built up over years. It was a 30-year from her initial foray into health care under President Clinton. You know, she became the target for a lot of negativity. And then um, she made some of her own mistakes on how she described the opponent's supporters and how she, one of the ones that stuck with me was complaining about, do you know how hard it is to uh, uh pay a, a mortgage on a $2 million house. Well, but that's not what the average person has. So there was, there was a disconnect between yeah. her as, a, as an abstract candidate and her at trying to relate to common people. And so she had extraordinarily high negatives um, that were, were they had to address. And I don't think they adequately addressed them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any of the current field has negatives as high as Hillary had. Mm. You know, in other words, Hillary's negatives are higher than anybody who's being mentioned right now uh, for cancer. So you, you may see the, the uh, current um, administration and the Republicans, if when they start attacking a person, that's a person they feel like maybe <laughs> is a danger to them winning uh, uh, because— um, that's that's important, and that's a, that's an advantage to the Democratic candidates right now is that they don't have that same high negativity that she had. Hmm. I want to back up just a little bit and ask you a quick personal question. Um, how did you get into? How does one become so knowledgeable on voting? A lot <laughs> of research. Just, a lot of research. A lot of research. Well, I mean, I I was fortunate. I mean, my my uh, father was. Um, a frustrated uh, political person. He was uh, uh, a history major in Western Maryland College. He and my mother met in Western Maryland College. And my uh, father was always one who was, we'd stop at every roadside sign to commemorate a Civil War battle or World War I or World War II. Um, And he was a young mayor in Southwest Virginia um, in a high school uh, history teacher and a football coach and, and ran for mayor. And so he was greatly involved in politics before World War II. Then World War II came along and altered his kind of trajectory. Uh, but he still had that kind of ambition, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And then when he – but he stayed in the Army, and he was a career Army officer and held a number of offi- – uh, uh, responsibilities in Vietnam and in in Japan and in Turkey and and so he I was exposed to um, a lot uh, and under saw him muse about what could have been mm. all right mm-hmm. um, and then on my mother's side my mother was um, a, gr- a college graduate for someone who was born in 1915 fairly unusual but not only that her mother was a college graduate from in 1913 from Western Maryland. So I, I, my, on my paternal side, maternal side, I had a 
uh, women who were active, engaged, educated. My great-grandmother was a suffragette and a prohibitionist marching in the streets of Baltimore and, and was one of the first women on the Republican Central Committee in Carroll County in 1920 when the suffrage amendment. So I, I come from a line of family that has been active. And my uncle, who uh, was the mayor of Manchester in Carroll County, so that public discussion was part of the family, you know. And my grandmother was the, one of the first women on the jury in Carroll County. And so being there was and then I was active in student government in fifth grade. I learned about gender politics when there were two of us running against a single girl for high school pres or elementary school president in fifth grade. And she, Carol, not that I remember what happened in the race, but Carol Noss won, and Sam Ziegler and I were the guys that split up the votes, and the girl won. So I learned about gender politics early. So I was engaged in student government, you know, throughout school and then, you know, did, did a lot of research and got involved when I, I was in the Army, too, during the Vietnam era, but I was, um, worked for the U.S. Army Judiciary. Uh, but when I got out and set up my own law office in Westminster, I immediately got involved in the local political clubs and the local central committee. There were fifth graders vying for a presidency? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is that See, is they, we something. actually had more elections in school in the 50s than I think they do wow. now. Now they, vote, now they may have elections, but it's maybe for fictional characters or yeah. something. But even, even I remember one time where we would have our own little radio you know, that would get broadcast to the classrooms, and you could make your little one-minute statement or something. <laughs> Well, did did you run on more candy at lunch? Like, how how does that? <laughs> well, you always run against the administration. That's true. Whatever. Right. That's whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, whether it's recess or free time, or you know, more free time for everybody. That's yes. right. You know. So, what about politics, and more specifically, voter turnout? Do you find so fascinating and so important? Well, it it's one of it's politics is um. It's not static. It's a dynamic. And it, 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 here's a true-false question. You take one of my exams and campaigns and elections, and one of the answers is politics complicated, right? It's complicated. And one of the things that makes it complicated is the voters. And the voters are not the same. Their attitudes change. And if there's a politician that's always trying to run the last election to the last electorate, that's likely not to be a winner. You've got to look to see what the electorate looks like now. And then you asked earlier about factors. Factors mm -hmm. are we know some things. Uh, uh, age is a factor. Uh, the top most voters tend to be in their 50s and 60s with the peak being in their early, early to mid 60s in terms of turnout. Uh, the 18-year-olds there's an enormous amount of volatility. Um, President Obama, all, they voted, turned out very well, 60%, 70% of them. But in the next gubernatorial election, that dropped down to 20 or 25%. So there's an enormous, could be 40-point difference from gubernatorial election to a presidential election. And even from, you know, so when you track 
all the demographic factors, um, and then you layer in education, income, um, there's about seven or eight factors that you look at to mm-hmm. try to s- predict turnout. And then issues matter. Uh, in some years, issues are more um, to the forefront, of the, and, and the state of the economy is another factor that works into a, a turnout equation. And you find that becomes a, a predictor more than hmm. – Candidates don't always like to hear this more than the name of the candidate. Mm. In other words, sometimes you win because you were the right, you were the candidate at that time, you know, had it, but it really wasn't you. It could have been Joe Smith. It could have won as well, you know. Um, and people who lose sometimes who are very popular, but they ran in the year in which they, it was not a good year to run. That actually happened to me. In 1982, I was ran for House of Delegates in, in Carroll County and lost a very close election in the general election. Mm. At the same year, they were but uh, spent, um, it was 1982, so NICPAC, the National Conservative Political Action, was first formed, and they ran a million dollars worth of TV ads against Sarbanes and practically called him a communist and everything like that. And and uh, Governor Hughes was up for re-election. Uh, and then here, I ran ahead of both of them in my district. I got more votes than they did. But that was a Republican year. Mm-hmm. And so you get swept away even, you know, and that, that happened to delegates and senators and local officials here this time. You know, mm-hmm. had the turnout, for example, in Frederick, we used the example that, had, the, had 67% of the ter- Democratic registered voters not turned down, and it was 57, mm-hmm. some of your local council races would have been different. Mm-hmm. Were you mm-hmm. surprised, along those lines, were you surprised, or how surprised, if surprised, were you in 2016 uh, with the presidential election, were you expecting Hillary Clinton to win? Well, Maryland was normal. Mm-hmm. All right, we we're uh, we tend to be uh, six to nine points more democratic than the country as a whole. Doesn't matter over the last you know fifty years. So, uh, but what happens in Maryland is we don't really see the campaign here. So I was surprised about those jurisdictions, those counties. What I'm most fascinated about is those counties that voted for Obama but then voted for Trump. And those are the ones that I'm going to be looking at again to try to figure out 2020. Mm. What about, you know, uh, the uh, north of uh, Detroit in the auto manufacturing counties that flipped? Uh, What about... uh, some of the suburbs in in Phoenix. We saw that play out in 2018, where the Democrat uh, won the seat to uh, replace uh, uh, Flake. Um, so, those are the parts of the jurisdictions that that are going to be telling, I think, for 2020. I only... and turnout's going to be the factor in those places. You mm. know, do those guys come out? They they were frustrated and and release that frustration on they they've deviated from normal voting turnout right. patterns and that's what surprised uh, most observers and i know it surprised the clinton campaign i only have one more question emma well i was just going to follow up if there was anything from 2018 that surprised you in maryland but yeah well the the I was pleased with the turnout i knew that it it came out i was pleased with the um 
change of the composition of the electorate. I, it, it, you, you said something about I, I, there wasn't really any result surprises, you know, mm-hmm. in other words. I mean, uh, maybe an occasional county race here or there flipped in a very close election, and there were a couple of them around the state. But if you had held the election a week later or a week before, you might have had a different result mm. because they were less than 100 votes or they were a couple hundred votes or they were, you know, that that uh, that can vary. Um, but it was what was, I guess, interesting to me was the fact that it was almost three levels of elections. You had the the gubernatorial election in which was a personal victory for for the governor you know he did he did very well but then the rest of the ticket was traditional maryland you know democratic proportions statewide i mean it, people don't know oh, the, the attorney general uh, got 200,000 more votes than the governor statewide and the comptroller got 340,000 more votes than the you know, so mm-hmm. it wasn't ideological at the top of the ticket here in maryland we didn't we weren't like Arizona or other jurisdictions where that it came. It, it was uniquely Maryland. Mm-hmm. And then at the local level uh, was another election, which was a real uh, turnout battle to go back to one of your primary mm-hmm. questions here today. And I think those campaigns that targeted their voters and worked their voters and, and uh, um, didn't take things for granted, didn't rely mm-hmm. on either the Trump effect or the Hogan effect were the ones that were successful at the, at the local mm. level. Mm. You, know. you are the resident expert in this room right now. God knows you know far more than me and Emma about <laughs> everything politics and voting. And uh, you, we, the midterm elections, 2018, they're over. We're in 2019 now. You've said a couple times today we're about 12, 15 months out before it really, really, really ramps up. A simple, quick, quick answer question. <laughs> You're going to hate it. You're going to hate it. What is the likelihood, zero to 100%, that in 2020, as it stands right now, Donald Trump wins re-election for presidency? That he wins? That he wins. Golly. You know, when, when Nate Silver, and I'm going to answer your question, but I want to put, <laughs> put a, 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 a little basis here. It drives me crazy when he started doing percentage uh-huh. things. And, and it is an easy way to communicate to people. I understand it. But it was awful wrong in 16. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, and it, 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 you... Yeah. What was that thing called? The, yeah. Oh, yeah. They had a, the, uh, had a different factor, but the, yeah, but um, almost like a gauge of some yeah, kind. Yeah. But the... the um, I would say that that his percent chances are probably in the 40 percentile range all right okay and and there uh uh, i don't know him personally i know his writing and i've talked to him occasionally but uh larry sabato who's a fairly conservative professor down at university of virginia um and and actually also alan um who um uh uh, Fleischman, who, who not Alan Fleischman, uh, Lipman, Alan Lipman at uh, down at uh, AU, who has a, a book out on the factors. He actually called Trump's victory last time. He's mm-hmm. a Democrat. He he actually ran for Senate one time, and and Alan uh, has seven factors that he looks at, and he predicted the Trump. And, and when you look at those seven factors, which are the economy, uh, nature of the issues, turnout. 
uh, all kinds of things. I think there are more negative against the administration than for it. But what could change that is what happens internationally. Where's the next flare-up around around the world, and how does the president handle that flare-up? You know, what happens with the uh, revelation of the fallout of a final completion of the Mueller report or any investigations in Congress. You know, that's that's a negative, you know, foreign policy, the economy. If if we ride through this kind of crazy up and down end of year, which is unprecedented, what happened in December 17th, if that evens out and you go back to the 27,000 market of the stock market, that's going to help the incumbent if the, if the economy improves. So, you know, in addition to the appeal of personality, which so many people, you, know, you look at these economic factors and these other factors to kind of gauge the, that. And you could start your own uh, uh, <laughs> nomenclature here at the Frederick News Post. You could you could have a have a gauge. We'll do that. And certain issues we'll like that. immigration could be helpful for the incumbent. Certain Dep- yeah, all, all he needs to be helpful <laughs> on that is to have some guy cross the border and shoot people. You know. <laughs> Well, well no, that's that. a great note to end on. <laughs> well, it's a, it, a here. Let, here, let me abstract yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, It's it in it's the externalities of a race that often you can do everything right, and something can happen in the nation, in the state, in the county to overwhelm uh, all the good work you've done, or or mask all the negative things that have happened. Uh, so the externalities are going to play a, a role in 2020. John, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Sure, thank you. Thank you.